Good morning. Good to see you guys. Uh, if you don't know, uh, we have been going through the book of Ephesians now for the last several weeks. And uh, we started right at the beginning in Ephesians 1 1. And, uh, but then last week we took a break because of an empty tomb. And we thought we should pay some attention to that. And, uh, and so this week we're coming back to the book of Ephesians. So if you brought a Bible with you, now's a good time to break it out, open to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter 2 today. Um, and uh, I want to give you a chance to get there. But um, I, I want to sort of remind you, since we've been off of this for a week, kind of where we've been going with this, what we have been learning, what the Lord has been teaching us already from the book of Ephesians. So we started right in Ephesians 1.1, and we've been going straight through verse by verse. And, and I just want to remind you of some of the key points, okay? Number one, by grace, God has given us all spiritual blessings through Jesus Christ. That's Ephesians 1.3. By grace, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. By grace... He adopted us and made us his children. That's chapter 1, verse 5. By grace, Christ redeemed us by his blood. That's Ephesians 1, 7. By grace, he's filled us with wisdom and insight so that we can even understand the spiritual nature of the truth of God's word and the gospel. That's Ephesians 1, 8. By grace, he secured our eternal, eternal inheritance with him in heaven. Ephesians 1, 11. By grace... He has given us His Holy Spirit and so sealed our salvation, verses 13 and 14. By grace, He reached out to us when we were dead in our sins and could do nothing to help ourselves. That's chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. By grace, He loved us, verse 4. By grace, He gave us life, 2, 5. By grace, He secured our future, verses 6 and 7. And by grace, according to verses 8 and 9, we are saved. And by grace alone. That gets us through chapter 9. We're going to, I mean, chapter 2, verse 9. We're going to start on verse 10 today. But before we do that, do you notice any kind of pattern here? Do you pick up on this picture of grace? That God just keeps pouring out and pouring out and pouring out. That everywhere we look, as Paul writes to us and says, I want you to understand this truth. The truth that he wants us to understand is covered in grace. It is all about grace. And so when you think about that kind of amazing grace, it's, it's kind of incredible just to drink it all in. But then we get to chapter 2, verse 10. Because in chapter 2, verse 10, it gets a little confusing because verses 8 and 9 made it absolutely crystal clear. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any good works, so that we have nothing to boast about. Amen? That's what it says. It's all by grace. So if you've been patting yourself on the back saying, man, I'm such a good Christian. It's so wonderful how I love God so well. Well, stop patting yourself on the back because it's all by grace yeah. and not by works. Yeah. Now, that gets us to chapter 2, verse 10, which gets confusing. Because when we get to Ephesians chapter 2 and we look at verse 10, it starts talking about works. Chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Grace, 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 works. What is works doing in this? All of a sudden, we're 
work? All of a sudden, this is about what I can do? This is about what I have to offer? How does that make any sense after all this emphasis on grace? Today, I want us to see that the proof that God's grace is activated in our lives is the works that happen after we're saved. Now, there's this um, kind of, you know, mediocre theologian named John Calvin, and uh, he's not that smart, but sometimes I read it anyway. And John Calvin put it this way. Here's what he said. He said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Isn't that good? Does that make sense? We are saved by faith alone, but the kind of faith, true saving faith, the faith that actually saves us from our sin, never stands alone. Because that faith ushers in an entirely new life, and that entirely new life is marked by transformation that involves our works. In the book of James, he explains it to us. Go to, go to the book of James. Uh, it's toward the back of your Bible after the book of Hebrews. Go to James chapter 2. I'll give you a second to get there, but we're going to look at James 2.18. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. The kind of faith that you have that doesn't have any works, what kind of faith is that? It's a faith that is not even powerful enough to change your life? How in the world can a faith like that change your eternity? And so James says, listen, I'm not saying that you work your way to your salvation. I'm just telling you that kind of faith that saves you, it results in a changed life. And you want to see my faith? Watch for my works. You'll see what I believe based upon my works. Um, you know, whenever a person exercises true saving faith, there is a transformation that takes place that other people can see. Now, other people can't see every detail of your life. They don't know everything about your heart. None of us is in a position to judge the heart of anybody else. But when God um, sort of invades somebody's life, he makes a big mess. And he starts moving stuff around, and he starts changing things, and attitudes get changed, and ideals get changed, and values get changed, and activities get changed. He changes us, even though it's not something that we do for ourselves. Let me try to help you understand this. Think of it kind of like plastic surgery, okay? Now, as I'm looking out upon all of you, I can't imagine why any of you would ever want to change anything about your looks. But let's just say, theoretically, that there was something about yourself that you didn't think was exactly perfect looking. And you said, I'm going to change it. So you went to Beverly Hills and you paid the high price plastic surgeon and you're going to have your whole face done, right? If you're going to have that done, are you going to do that work yourself? Yeah. No, absolutely not. If you tried, you would be very sorry. About the first incision you made, you'd say, this was a dumb idea, I quit, you'd be left with a scar, and you'd be uglier than when you started, right? <laughs> That's not good. So what do you do? You go and you pay a high-priced, well-skilled surgeon, and they put you under anesthesia, and you go to sleep, and I'm talking sleep, and you are asleep on the table while they are carving on your face, and you're sleeping so deeply that even while a scalpel goes into your body, it doesn't bother you in the least, right? You are contributing nothing to this. You're just laying there, and it's being done to you. But as the weeks go by, and the bandages come off, and the swelling goes down, and the healing comes in, 
when someone sees you who knew you before, they're going to recognize the difference, right? Let me give you an example. You remember that nice looking kid on the left? Remember him? Yeah, he became the guy on the right. Just a little bit of plastic surgery, right? Now, if you saw a before and after of him like that, of course you know something's been done. And, and we sort of laugh at that, but here's the deal. When someone looks at your life who knew you before, can they tell something's been done? Can they tell there's been some transformation that's taken place? You didn't do it. You were just passive in the whole thing. God was the master surgeon who carved and cut and changed the way that you look to other people. But you look differently because you are different. And if you don't look different, then you need to ask yourself, what's wrong with this story? Ephesians 2.10. I want us to read this again together. Go back to Ephesians. In Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. When did he prepare these good works? Beforehand. Beforehand. So, so God had this plan a long time ago that he was all the while, all the while, sort of waiting for you to show up on the scene before he could, you could carry out the things that he planned for you to carry out with your life. Even, even though this verse mentions works, the subject of Ephesians is still grace. That hasn't changed. But look at what it says. We are his workmanship. And every time I talk about this verse, I always have to, I have to expand on this a little bit. So if you've heard me say this before, forgive me. But this is so important for us to understand. We are his workmanship. It's from the Greek word, workmanship. From the Greek word poema, which, which is the word from which we get our English word poem. Okay? It's the idea is that it's a work of art. That we are his masterpiece. When you think about an artist and what they do when they create something, they pour something that's in their heart and it comes out on a canvas or in a sculpture or in a song or in a poem or whatever it is that they're creating, right? And a bit of who they are is poured out and you see it. And no two songs are exactly alike. No two poems exactly alike. No two sculptures should be exactly alike because every time an artist sits down, something's coming out of his heart that never existed before and he's creating it. The scripture says we are his masterpiece. Now, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say we are his masterpiece. It says you are his masterpiece. You, as an individual, yet yeah, you, you are a work of art, unique, crafted for a purpose that he prepared beforehand so that you can walk in that purpose. Let me, let me illustrate this for you. I don't know a ton about art, but I'm smart enough to know that Michelangelo is one of the greatest artists of all time, right? Have you seen his work? The Sistine Chapel, right? The ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. I wish I could. Sh I, I wish we could all go there and he could actually look at it and see it because the picture does it no justice whatsoever. Because Michelangelo had a paintbrush in his hand every day for four years painting just that ceiling. And he did it all himself. And in fact, what was interesting is I was reading up on the background of this, is that this is like the, the thing we know him for, right? 
and yet it is the thing that he, um, shall we say, enjoyed the least. In fact, he constantly complained because of the impact painting the ceiling was having on him. You know, we, we've heard or you've seen um, the idea that he was like on a scaffold on his back for days at a time painting. Not true. He said he was never on his back. He was in a standing position the entire time while he was painting a ceiling on top of a scaffold, right? Which caused his spine to become out of alignment and his body to become twisted so that he was forever marked after painting this, crippled by the work that he did. And he just detested it. And every morning he had to climb up that thing again and he had to paint some more. And he also said this, because the Pope um, required him to do this. When the Pope called upon him and said, I want you to paint this, he said, no. And the Pope said, excuse me, I'm the Pope. <laughs> and so he said, yes. And he was, he was required by the Pope to do this work. And when he, when he talked about it later, he said, I don't even know why he asked me, because I'm not even a painter. <laughs> Michelangelo, I'm not even a painter. And you know what? He's right. What was he? He was a sculptor. He, he, he was known for his, for his statues and his sculptures. And, and painting for him was just something, well, I guess I could do it. It wasn't really even his thing. And so what he really loved to do was sculpt. And when you look at his sculptures, you can tell. Spectacular. This is the David. Spectacularly beautiful. Every detail exactly as it should be. Still standing today as one of the greatest works of art ever created. And, the, and then there's this one. The Pieta of Jesus and his mother after the crucifixion is it's powerful and moving. And if you could see, this is such a, the picture doesn't do it justice. If you could see it, and you see that just the nuance of every fold of the fabric and the way the marble runs through it, it's just absolutely spectacular, absolutely amazing to see an artist who has that kind of talent. But here's the thing. Of these three things I just showed you by Michelangelo, which one is the masterpiece? All of them. And yet, they look nothing alike. They couldn't be more different. They're completely different works of art. You would never um, confuse one for the other. Everyone a masterpiece, and everyone unique. That's why I corrected myself when I said, we are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece. You, individually, are his masterpiece. Every one of us. And then when you think about the weaving of the tapestry of the body of Christ together, that's what it means when it says we are his masterpiece. It's an incredible thought. It's a beautiful thing. And, and here's the thing. Let me show you one, one more work of Michelangelo's. This is called the angel with a candlestick. Um, it's just exquisite. And someone said, how did you do it? How did you take a block of marble and do this? And you see the quote, he said, I saw the angel in the marble, in the marble, and I carved until it set him free. He, he saw a block of rock, and he said, there's an angel in there. And what did he do? He began chipping away, breaking off, sanding down, smoothing out, 
until what was left was the angel who had been hiding in the block of stone all the time. And only Michelangelo knew it. Our God is such an exquisite artist that he doesn't just create us, but he continues chipping away, he continues sanding down all the rough spots and turning what we have to offer him with our lives into something so exquisitely beautiful, something so unique, something that stands upon its own as different than everything else that's ever been, and he calls it you. Now let me ask you this. An artist like that, who is trying to make you into a beautiful work of art, why in the world would you ever resist that? I can tell you the answer if you don't want to tell me. It's because it hurts. It hurts. You see someone walking up with a hammer and chisel, you run. Right? It hurts. You want to chip away at me? You want to break me down? Get rid of the imperfections in me? I don't think I want to do that. And you see God coming with his hammer and chisel and he goes, sorry, I got an appointment. Here's God. Because we have such a hard time trusting in the artist to actually create in us the work of art that he sees hidden in the block of stone that we're willing to live with. He has such a vision for our lives. I want you to go to the book of Romans, okay? So if you're in Ephesians, you're going to go three or four books to the left. Before 1 Corinthians, you're going to find the book of Romans. And you're going to turn to Romans chapter 8, my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. And I, and I want you to look at this at this verse, Romans 8.29. It's talking about this whole process of salvation and how God works it out. And I want you to see just verse 29 for today. Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Those whom he Predestined those whom he foreknew. This is going back just like Ephesians do. For beforehand, before you were born, before you were even uh, a possibility, he saw you. And he decided to create you. And, and he predestined you and he foreknew you. Why? So that you might be conformed to the image of Christ. This is about him conforming you. This is about him squeezing you into the Jesus mold. This is about you starting to live the life of Christ through your life. That we would be conformed to the image of his son. That's why he set us aside for his purpose way back when. Now flip over to Romans chapter 12, just a couple pages to the right. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, that we're supposed to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. This is what Ricky was getting at this morning as he was leading us to deeper worship. And he was saying, guys, 
This can't be about lights, and it can't be about music, and it can't be about sound systems. What it's got to be about is the King of kings and Lord of lords and us coming before his throne and laying ourselves down. That's why we sang that song this morning, I Lay Me Down. I am going to get on the altar, and I'm going to stay there as a living sacrifice. Why? That I could not be conformed to this world, but transformed by Christ into the vision of what he has in mind for me. The Christian life is a transformed life. Now, have any of you, I don't know if you've done this, I haven't done this, but this is kind of the new fad, it's a big craze these days. Have any of you been to one of these instructor-led painting classes? Yeah. Right? You go, I've seen these kinds of pictures posted on social media a thousand times. And I'm not sure why, but I've never seen a man in any of them. So I don't know what that is. But apparently this is a lady thing. The ladies like to go with a group of friends, and there's an instructor who teaches them, and they all paint the same painting, right? And isn't it interesting, as you see them sitting here, it's not a great picture, but you see them showing you their paintings. No two of those paintings is alike. You, you can say, well, they all painted the same thing. But it doesn't look alike twice. Because every artist pours forth from themselves something different. And, and, and an artist um, it cannot be duplicated, even if you try. And God is the ultimate artist. Not a brush stroke is wasted. And I, I don't go to these classes. If I did, we would all post for the picture afterwards, and there would be 20 um, Waterfalls, and there would be me with a little stick figure and a happy face or something. That's about the best I can do. I don't have any artistic ability for painting or drawing at all. And yet, God asks us to trust Him, the master artist. He's not asking you to trust me to paint your life. And thank God He's not asking you to trust you to paint your life. Amen? Amen. He says, let me paint your life. I got this picture in mind that is beyond description. You couldn't even understand it if I explained it. I'm telling you, God says, I have a vision for your life that is so far beyond your wildest dreams. Won't you just stay on the table and let me keep creating? Yes. That's what God's trying to do. He's the ultimate artist. Never does he waste a chisel strike with a hammer. The color is never even the slightest shade off when he's the painter. He has a masterpiece in mind for you. So why in the world would we ever resist him? Are you old enough to remember the 70s, those little booklets called the Four Spiritual Laws? Do you guys remember these? Yeah, they, they were, I think the Campus Crusade for Christ put them out, and it was just a tool for, for Christians to carry, and you could sit down with somebody and explain the gospel using this little pamphlet called the Four Spiritual Laws, it just had four points to it. Their first point was this. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And you know what? According to Ephesians 2.10, that is absolutely true. He created you for something. Or more specifically, more accurately, from Ephesians 2.10, He created you for some things. Works. That He's prepared beforehand so that you can walk in them. When God found you, what kind of raw material of your life did you have to offer him to work with? No, no. Not much, right? 
It'd be like you'd come to me, you hand me a box of Jello and say, make a personal computer out of this. Right? I'm telling you guys, when God found me, I, I didn't even have a box of Jello to offer him. What I had was a broken, shattered, completely lost life. That was it. I had nothing to give him. And he took that mess, and he is in the process of creating a masterpiece. Now, I know some of you look at me and you're like, really? <laughs> I guess I'm not seeing it. That's okay. Because the process is ongoing. I know I'm not there yet, but I also know he's not finished yet. He's going to keep working, guys. He's going to keep shaping and molding and coloring and shadowing and creating just exactly the picture that he has in mind. The day is coming when I'll be with him in heaven and I will be in a glorified body and I will be a different person. And he will have made me the version of me that he intended me to be all along before I rebelled against him. That's what he has in mind. I'm not there yet, but I'm telling you, what he had to start with when he began working with me was less than nothing. And he is already doing an incredible work. You remember the video at the beginning of the guy painting? Hopefully you remember. You'd have to be really old to forget that. <laughs> but, but here's the thing. He's painting and he's just like throwing paint and splotching it. And didn't it look just like a mess? I mean, it's just a mess. You're like, what is this? Why are we even watching this? This guy is just like putting spots and paint on the thing. And then he takes it and he turns it around and you go, oh, I didn't see that. Right? And then he just keeps adding shading and making perfections. By the time he was done, five minutes and two seconds. From blank canvas to that. Now, you'd hang that in your home, wouldn't you? And that was a spectacular work of art. But while it was going on, you couldn't tell. While it was going on, it was a mess that was being slowly shaped into something spectacular. And even when it was done, right, what was it a picture of? The crucified Christ, crown of thorns, blood on his face, head hanging down. Even that is not a beautiful thing. And yet, did you see beauty in it? Yes. Look what a great artist can do, even when he starts with a mess. Some of us today are frustrated and discouraged, and we find ourselves in a place where we're like, I have just messed this whole life up so bad, there is no pulling me out of this mess. Listen, there is a master artist who is busily working, and he is waiting for you to get back on the table and let him keep doing his thing. And every one of his works is a masterpiece. God has an incredible plan for each and every one of us. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says this, I am not my own, I have been bought with a price. Guys, you should memorize that. I am not my own. It's a crazy idea. Your life is not your life if you're a Christian. You traded his life for yours. And so you no longer belong to you, you belong to him. And your life needs to be about what he intends and what he is doing. You certainly don't have the right to squander your life. You certainly don't have the right to squander your gifts. You belong to God. And it's no longer your life. It's his life. Go to, go to Matthew 25. Let's bring this home. 
Go to Matthew chapter 25. And we're going to look at a well-known story that Jesus told. It's in Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 14. Let me just read it to you. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more, but he who received the one talent went away, dug a hole in the ground, and hid the master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received five talents came up, brought him five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I've gained you five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the glory of your master. Also, <coughs> the, one who, <coughs> the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I know you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he who will have an abundance. But from the one who does not, even, one who does not have, even what he has shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know how you take that, but when I think about this, throw him into the outer darkness, the place with weeping and gnashing of teeth, I think, that's a little harsh. He didn't steal the guy's money. Right? He protected it. And he gave him back what was his. And you say, so why be so harsh with this guy? Well, the first guy took the money, he invested it, made it work, and, and, and served his master's interest, and he was able to give him back a return on his investment. The second guy did the same thing. The third guy is punished, I'm convinced, not because of the money. It's not because he only gave him back one talent. He's punished because what he received as a servant was the master's. And his job was to do the master's will with it. But instead, he selfishly used it to protect his own interests. He basically said, I'm going to use this for me. I'm going to make sure I don't get in trouble. And the result was, he got in terrible trouble. Because we are stewards of the lives that God has given us. They are not ours. And the scripture says we will give an account for our stewardship of those lives. And when it comes time to give that stewardship, do you want to be somebody who says, I was afraid of what might happen, so to protect myself, I buried what you gave me, Lord. I didn't invest it. I didn't make it about your will. I made it about mine. I don't want to stand before Jesus and say that. In Galatians 2.20, Paul wrote, I've been crucified with Christ. 
It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Friends, i got to tell you, the life you're living is His life. To live is Christ. And it's an incredible gift. But it's just a stewardship. And he has an amazing plan for that life. That's being lived out through you. And only you can live out that plan because there is no other you. You're a masterpiece. You're a one of a kind. Nobody else can live out the plan that God has for your life. Before the foundation of the world, he had works in mind for you to walk in. He crafted you for just such a time as this. Have you ever thought about the fact, why weren't you born in another time? Why weren't you born in another place? Why didn't you meet other people? Why is it that, God, that, that your life seems to have been orchestrated the way it was? Is it possible? Is it just possible that maybe a sovereign God had a plan in mind? And that you're supposed to make a difference right now, right here, with the people that are in your life. I'm convinced that's the case. You're his masterpiece. He created you for that. Don't bury that in the backyard. Live wholeheartedly for Jesus. He's been planning this for a long time. You were saved by grace. Now, Christian, live by that grace. Walk in that grace. Live by the good works that he's prepared beforehand. It is all about him. And he wants to do great things through you for his glory. Don't miss a moment of the adventure that God has planned for your life because you want to protect yourself and avoid the pain of letting the artist create in you who he has in mind. Take his hand. Walk in the good works that he's prepared for you. And as you do, remember this. It's all by grace. Amen? Amen. Amen.